So if you would jo- turn uh, in your Bibles uh, to our scripture this morning, it's 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 10. You can find that on page 1798 in your pew Bibles, 2 Corinthians 5. And this is Paul's writing. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The word of the Lord. When you meet someone new, small talk can be awkward. We tend to ask certain questions like, where are you from or what do you do? And in most cases, those two questions can be enough to get the ball rolling into a a more full-fledged conversation. Unless, of course, one of the answers to those first two questions is so strange or unusual that conversation just dies. I can relate to this. And it's not because I tell people that I'm originally from the Chicago area. That around here just usually gets an I'm sorry or don't tell me you're a Bears fan. I'll probably keep getting the I'm sorry, but don't tell me you're a Bears fan may go away now that Aaron Rodgers is gone from Green Bay. We're kind of happy about that. But no, it's the second question that usually messes things up when I'm talking to people. Let me give you an example. I was getting my hair cut, and the person cutting my hair was just talking away constantly, just talk, talk, talk. And then he asked, so what do you do? And with an inward cringe, knowing that how this was likely to turn out, I responded with, I'm a hospice chaplain. Awkward silence ensued. I'm quite sure I even heard crickets chirping because the conversation stopped completely, and he didn't say another word the rest of the haircut. I will say that silence is not the only answer I get. Sometimes people will say, what's that? So I expand a little bit and say, well, a hospice chaplain, I care for people who are dying and and also for their families. Then I get the silent stare, or that must be hard. And I think some of you right now are wondering, which one did I say when he told me that? 
But I get it. We don't like to talk about death. Death is one of those touchy, taboo subjects, especially for casual conversation. Talking about death makes us feel uncomfortable. It brings up emotions we don't want to experience or ones we find hard to control. It might bring up memories that are difficult or painful. If you haven't guessed it yet, I'm going to say that death word a lot in this message. And I do apologize if the subject brings up painful emotions, but I think that this is something we all need to talk about, and of all places that should be safe to do so, I pray that the church is that safe place. Just for a couple minutes, though, as we start, let's look at a few reasons why we are so uncomfortable or why we might be so uncomfortable talking about death. And the first is that here in the U.S. in 2023, we're just not that familiar with death, especially compared to just a few generations ago. In 1800, the average life expectancy at birth worldwide was less than 30 that number climbed, began to climb around 1800 and eventually reached 60 in 1970, and that's worldwide. Here in the U.S., currently it's around 78, 79, depends on, on who your uh, statistics are from. But simply put, people are living longer, so death is no longer a common occurrence. And also, we live in kind of an urban, suburban society where we go to the grocery store to get our meat instead of going out to the barn or to the field and getting it ourselves. We're not so familiar with bringing about death. Additionally, we have an overly optimistic view of medicine, fueled primarily by what we see on TV. This is a, a big pet peeve of mine. There was a study that looked at television and medicine on television. And on television, CPR is effective about 70% of the time. That's what it showed on their survey of all the television shows that year. 70% of the time, CPR is effective. A study of the public actually put that number higher. People thought it was around 75%. CPR is effective less than 20% of the time, and that's if you're in the hospital with a trained staff ready to do it. Okay. Sociologist Stefan Timmerman said, death, instead of a final and irrevocable passage, becomes a process manipulable by humans. We believe that modern medicine can do miracles and push off death. Death is now, in many ways, an option. A second reason that we don't like to talk about death is that we fear the ramifications of death. Tim Keller, who died recently, called death the great interrupter. Death ends relationships. It separates us from the ones we love and care about. That's the reality of death. We can't do anything about that. Death also makes us face realities like, what will my legacy be? Friday this week, I was visiting one of my home hospice patients. 
And one of his greatest fears, as we talked about the, the fears that he had about his approaching death, one of his greatest ones was whether people really meant it when they came to visit him and said nice things about him. He just couldn't believe that he deserved their compliments. If you remember one of the final scenes in the movie, Saving Private Ryan, an aged Private Ryan stands in front of the grave of Captain Miller. And he turns to his wife and pleads, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. He wondered if he'd lived a life worthy of the sacrifices that others had made on his behalf. And death makes us face our doubts and our insecurities about ourselves, And it brings them right to the surface. A final and very powerful reason, final reason that I'll give, is the result of our modern society. First, our lives are so busy and so hectic that we don't or can't take time to contemplate the meaning of life. We run from this place to that place. We're racing back and forth. It's hard to think about being made for more than this when society is emphasizing that we should live in the moment. I met uh, with a a 95-year-old Jewish lady, sweet lady, uh, this past week. And she said that it was only after her recent cancer diagnosis that she has decided to spend some time philosophizing, in her words, as she called it. Philosophizing, thinking about the meaning of life. Our lives are so busy that for some of us, it's going to take a terminal diagnosis at the age of 95 before we take the time to think about being made for more than this. We're so busy. And secondly, we're bombarded with messages telling us that the purpose of life is to find security and happiness and enjoyment as soon as possible and as often as possible. Work harder, make more money, buy bigger toys and houses and bigger vacations and whatever else that will bring you happiness and security and do it now so that you can still enjoy it. So we find ourselves in an interesting predicament. We are living longer, so thinking about death is not a pressing issue. And then we increasingly focus on the here and now. So not only do we not need to think about death, we're encouraged not to. But this doesn't necessarily lead to feeling more secure and confident in our current situations. We worry. Rather, we're left feeling ill-equipped and poorly prepared when death does rear its ugly head. And lately, it does that more and more on the news at night, in our communities, in our families, our personal lives. Longevity and resources and top-notch medical care should make us feel secure, but we are anything but And it only takes someone like me to mention death and dying a few times. And suddenly we're silent and squirming and staring at our shoes. And I submit to you that the reason for this is that there is a fundamental flaw 
in our beliefs about life and death. We feel insecure and afraid because we built our life on the wrong formula. It's kind of like using the Pythagorean theorem to find the circumference of a circle. I'm wondering if any of the students got that one. If your parents are looking at me with a strange look, explain it to them later. Or maybe they can explain what you missed. Seriously, if we are ever to become comfortable with conversations about death and able to find true security, we need to change the formula by which we are living our lives. Look at our text. Paul is in his second letter to the Corinthian church, and he's in the middle of a discussion uh, about comparing our earthly struggles to our heavenly reward. In the previous chapter, he used that famous example of storing up treasures in jars of clay. Jars of clay were a secure storage place in those times. He is continuing this theme of insecure versus secure in our text. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. So right away we see that Paul is using two things to illustrate our lives, housing and clothing. With housing, he compares a tent to a permanent building. It's important for us to remember that for Paul's audience, a tent was familiar and a common form of housing. There were still nomadic peoples living in tents as they traveled the area, and for some people, if they were traveling a distance, they weren't sure if an inn was going to be available. They took tents with them so that they could find shelter in the evening. Tent camping, though, was not a form of recreation for these people, but rather an accepted way of living. Paul himself was a tent maker. Ancient tents were much different from what we know, but the similarity to our modern tents is that they had some drawbacks. Because tents are made to be put up and taken down and moved, the structure and protection they provide has its limits. If you've ever camped, you know that keeping the outside, outside your tent, is a constant battle. When it rains, tent leaks. Even if you camp in some place that's not sandy, there always seems to be sand brought in the tent. When the wind blows, tents shake and rattle. Now, I haven't camped much in the last 25 years. My wife is not a camper. But I remember a trip uh, that I took in high school to Glacier National Park in Montana. And we camped in tents on private land that was surrounded completely by the park. And now the first difficulty we had living in tents for that week was the cold. Overnight temperatures in that part of Montana, even in July, are in the 30s and low 40s. We woke up to frost every morning. 
So it was cold. It's hard to stay warm in a tent. And I also remember waking up one morning and seeing large moving shadows on the wall of the tent. Now we were camping in a field in bear country. And these were large shadows. Let's just say our suburban teen minds went to some horror movie images and we were very scared. Imagine our relief when we heard the first moo coming from the cows who were wondering why there were tents in their pasture. Tents are not secure long-term housing and that's what the image Paul is building here is security versus vulnerability or vulnerability versus security. The second image of being clothed versus being naked, and again, the comparison is of being secure versus being vulnerable. This was an environment where the sun beats down on you, and the dust and the sand are whipped up by the wind, and they scour every exposed surface, so clothing that covered everything was important. It provided protection and security. And this image of being unclothed brings about this idea of being vulnerable and insecure. Paul takes it a step further when the clothing image, if you remember, is of being clothed with a building. But again, it's vulnerability versus security. Excuse me, just need to wet my whistle. Now, Paul is not just telling people, move into a house, clothe yourselves properly, because the building and the clothing he are t- he's talking about are both heavenly, not earthly. We have an eternal house in heaven, and we long to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Paul is flipping conventional wisdom on its ear. He's telling the Corinthians, and he's telling us, that permanence and security are found in heaven, not on earth. If Paul were to be right with us right here and now and hear all of our society's messages that security and happiness can be found in possessions and vacations and whatever else, he'd tell us we're crazy. He said, you're all living in tents and wandering around unclothed and vulnerable. Safety and security are only truly found in heaven, not on earth. Look at verse 4. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Now, if I were to ask how many of you long to be in heaven, and I asked for hands, I'm sure a lot of hands would go up. If I were to follow that up with how many of your are praying that Jesus comes again so that we can enjoy our eternal reward, the same number of hands would go up. I'm in the same boat. But I've left a third question unspoken, a third option that we don't like to think about, and that is how many of you are ready to, in, ready to die to enjoy that reward? You see, if you're anything like me, it's pretty easy to pray that Jesus comes again soon because my secret hope is that he will come again before 
I die so I don't have to. I want him to come quickly so I don't have to think about death. You see, there are two things that need to occur before we are clothed with our heavenly building, and it's an either-or question, not a both-and. Either Jesus comes again, or we have to die. I think we're all hoping for the former. In our refusal to talk about death, we are ignoring that for many of us, it's going to be the second option. We don't know when Jesus is coming again, but given history, it may be that many of us die to see that reward. Ignoring the reality of our own death makes death scarier than it needs to be. And notice the little flip that Paul puts in the final phrase of the verse. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We've been talking about life versus death as in life is now and death is what is coming and what we fear. But Paul flips this around. And this is that fundamental flaw in our belief about life and death that I was referring to. We have convinced ourselves that this existence here in this place, in these bodies, is the ultimate reason that we exist. That all of this is the purpose of our existence. If we were created for this existence alone, when we die, life is swallowed up by death. But Paul is saying that when we die, death is swallowed up by life. He's turned it completely around. Instead, we live and then we die and death swallows up life in the, the way we think now. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul says we live and when we die, we continue to live. Death is swallowed up by eternal life. Paul continues in verse 5. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose. That purpose is for the mortal body to be swallowed up by life. A wonderful catechism used by some of our brothers and sisters in the Reformed faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, begins with a, a statement that may help us understand a little. The catechism starts with the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy the vision of God forever. Our purpose, the reason we were created, can't be accomplished in these mortal bodies alone. We can begin to glorify God in our time here on earth, and we can begin to enjoy the vision of God, but we do this incompletely and imperfectly, And our purpose goes far beyond that. Only in our eternal bodies can we fully accomplish the reason for our existence and truly glorify God and fully enjoy the vision of God forever. But death is still scary. What I've been saying is a lot of head knowledge. Chaplains like to talk about head knowledge versus heart knowledge. So how do we make this head knowledge heart knowledge. 
Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we will always be confident that as long as we are home in the body, we are away from the Lord. I'll be honest with you. One of the reasons that I'm so comfortable talking about death is simply because death is an everyday reality in my life. My family has a, probably a, an otherworldly ability to talk about death because it's been a part of their life as long as I've done this. But that doesn't mean that I'm not afraid of death. I'll be... Or, sorry. Even times, even I have times that I struggle. I talk every day to people who are dying. I've stood at the bedside of hundreds of deaths. I've helped clean the bodies. I've assisted the funeral directors as they take possession of the bodies. I've stood next to countless family members attempting to offer comfort. I usually read Psalm 23 and John 14 together. The psalm ends with, And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In John 14, we hear Jesus say, In my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And it is in this reminding others of God's promises that I am constantly reminded. God uses these texts to remind me constantly of these promises. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the only way that we will be comfortable talking about death is to allow the Spirit to remind us and assure us that the mortal will be swallowed up in life. One of the ways we do it is through reading and rereading the promises of Scripture, whether it's in the Bible or other sources. One of my high school teachers had Q&A 1 as his license plate. Q&A 1 refers to question and answer 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism, one of our confessions here in the Christian Reformed Church. It's a bit more personal than the Westminster. Q&A 1 is one of the ways that I remind myself. I've used it as password. Um, now I've got to change things. Uh, <laughs> I just let you all in my secret. But question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism begins with the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We belong body and soul in life and in death to Jesus we don't need to fear death. We don't need to be afraid to talk about death because death has been swallowed up by eternal life. At funerals and memorial services, I often read these words from Paul as well. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Please pray with me.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus to conquer death so we don't have to be afraid. We thank you for promising eternal security for us. And we thank you for providing your Holy Spirit to remind us and assure us of your faithfulness. Constantly remind us that we are not our own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in, and it is in his name that we pray this. Amen.